Welcome to Dates with Death, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to death and all that comes with it. For a long time, the topic of death has been considered as taboo in the West, even almost completely banished from our lives. This has come at a price, so we take it upon ourselves to reinaugurate the quintessential philosophical task, at least according to Cicero, namely to meditate upon death. In today's death, it is date, sorry, in today's date, it is my great honor to be accompanied by Professor Charles W. King. Charles is Professor of Roman History, Late Antiquity, and Social and Religious History at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Hello, Charles, and welcome. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me uh, to speak in this forum. It's a great pleasure of mine. Now, as has become the habit here at Dates with Death, I would like to start by asking you the basic question of why death? Why, when, and how did you become interested in this peculiar object of Roman death and afterlife, as this is what we are going to talk about? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. The I think that Roman death brought together for me several different interests, both in terms of subject matter and in terms of sort of methodology. Uh, and I'd always been interested in one of the things that it maybe attracted me to the study of history in the first place uh, was an interest in sort of variations within categories. That is to say that, you know, when you throw out a term like you know, family or marriage or life or death, uh, you know, that has a set of asso associations within our own societies that, you know, it's easy to start to believe as universal of every society. And, and one of the interesting things, of course, is to realize that it might not be, uh, and that there might be cultures that are reading something like death uh, very differently uh, than, say, modern America, modern France, and, that, and so forth. And I, I got interested in death specifically, uh, in part simply because of where I was studying uh, in the early days of my graduate program. Uh, so I went on ultimately to get a PhD from the University of Chicago, uh, but uh, before that, uh, I, I got a, an MA from uh, the University of Arizona, where I was studying uh, with Alan Bernstein, uh, who has written uh, several books on the subject of the Christian hell, uh, the formation of hell, and then later uh, uh, hell and its rivals. Uh, and he uh, taught a class, you know, on uh, the history of hell which, I mean, it was about variations of the idea of hell within Christianity in particular, but it also uh, looked at comparative uh, material from uh, Greek and Roman paganism, from Zoroastrianism, from uh, Norse, uh, early medieval uh, Norse thought, uh, and I became interested in this idea of, of variations uh, of approaches to the afterlife. Uh, and then when I went on to the University of Chicago, uh, you know, I was looking for a dissertation topic and I considered several different ones, uh, but I kept coming back to this idea of Roman death that I thought that it was something that had not been very well studied, that, that uh, there wasn't a lot on it. Uh, and it, uh, a lot of what had been written had been written by, you know, Franz Kumo or somebody before World War II. Uh, and uh, the, 
and and so that it was it was a field sort of ripe for for study and i've been sort of studying it off and on uh for the last you know, 25 years or something like that uh my recent book in in 2020 coming out um and i think that uh so i was, I was interested in looking at death uh as as an you know variation of how roman death differed from you know christian understandings or later understandings in other cultures uh and i was interested i think i think i was attracted to the methodology that was required uh that if you study christian theology you you can sort of pick an author well you know cyril of Alexandria or somebody, and you can spend the rest of your career examining, you know, his sizable writings on various subjects. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's uh, this, this, you know, in-depth dive into a particular text or set of texts by a particular author. And when you study Roman paganism, you really can't do that. I mean, the, you know, there are, there are texts to look at, but uh, that you don't get theology as such. Uh, and, and and philosophy is often sort of detached, uh, at least to a degree, from Roman religious practice. Uh, and so you need to sort of collect little bits of information from different sources and put them together. And it, it's kind of an exer exercise in model building. Mm. Uh, and uh, Mer Martin Bernal, uh, the historian, once said that what ancient historians do is competitive plausibility uh that is you're 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 putting together a model for, to explain the existing evidence which is competing with other models uh and so you have to have competitive plausibility you have to be more plausible as an explanation of the sources you have uh and bernal of course is a controversial figure but uh, for various reasons but I always thought he was right about that, that that, mm. that is what ancient historians do. I, and I found that that was, that was an attractive uh, way of, uh, of approaching the project, that, that it was interesting to build that model and, mm. and, and to see, uh, you know, what I could find, you know, if I tried to put the pieces together. Mm. And, and so that's really very much uh, how I got involved in, in doing Roman death the way I ended up finally doing mm. it. Um, uh, and it's, you know, gone through various stages over the years uh, before my, my final book, but, um, uh, you know, that it's, it's been a developing, a developing mm. model. Yeah. It's a very competitive model, if I can tell you that already. It, it convinced me at least, but maybe I'm not the typical scholar of that. But again, it's, it's a very competitive model. Now, turning to ancient Rome, and remaining obviously aware of the century-long history of Rome, we are in, in fact talking about more than a millennium, and remaining also aware of the almost innumerable theories that have been proposed about Roman beliefs, is it possible to highlight some of the more basic points about Roman concepts of death and the afterlife? And, and maybe for now, uh, let us stick with the more traditional narratives, after which we can slowly start correcting and getting into the more uh, competitive and the more convincing narrative or model. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, so traditionally, the way scholars have looked at the Roman afterlife has been based primarily on two main 
assumptions. One is that afterlife in general uh, as a category uh, is similar for the Romans or, or indeed Greeks uh, as it is in the Judeo-Christian tradition, that is to say that the focus should be on where the dead go, uh, you know, to an afterlife, mm -hmm. to an underworld, uh, and what happens to them there. And, and so you'll get scenarios that involve some sort of posthumous judgment, uh, and you'll get others that don't, but it's, it's about storage in a sense. I mean, it, it's about where, where the dead go rather than the interaction of the dead with the living. Um, and the other assumption, which is very closely tied to that one, is that Roman religion is primarily based on great Greek religion, uh, even to the degree that what's interesting about Roman religion is always going to come in some way from the Greeks. Um, and this has led, in particular, when combined with the first assumption, uh, a strong tendency to emphasize Roman borrowing of Greek uh, underworld models, uh, you know, which of course show up in Roman po poetry and in Virgil's Aeneid and other works. Um, I, and you have, uh, you know, the divided underworld and uh, uh, Tartarus, the place of punishment, and Elysium, the place of reward. Um, and it's not necessarily that the Romans had no interest in these ideas. I can think of texts where authors seem to be taking the idea of posthumous judgment seriously. Um, uh, and you have sort of Menanderator, uh, you know, offering, you know, the, that the dead will go to Elysium. He's giving advice on how to write a speech of consolation to deliver at a funeral. And he's talking about how you need to talk about uh, the dead going to Elysium and so forth. And it seems to me that that would be meaningless if nobody believed in it. Mm. Uh, so it's not that there's nothing to that. Uh, but uh, what my work has shown, I, I think, is, is that what that focus on, on Tartarus and Elysium neglects uh, is, in the first place, the indigenous Roman tradition uh, of the deified dead uh, and deification in general as an approach to an afterlife. Um, and, you know, you will normally find that to the degree that modern scholars acknowledge the Romans had an idea of deifying the dead, that they will restrict it uh, to emperors alone, to the deified emperors, uh, who are sort of a special category. Um, and uh, I mean, I once had, you know, when I tried to publish an article several years back, I had an anonymous reader, you know, tell me that, you know, what the author doesn't seem to understand is that <laughs> deification was limited solely to emperors. Uh, and, you know, he sort of made it sound like I was an idiot for not uh, <laughs> acknowledging this point. But, but I think that this is not, in fact, correct. Uh, and that you need to look at the deification of dead, in, in particular, uh, the cult of the dead, mm. uh, the worship of, of the demones. And demones, I mean, it's not that they've been entirely neglected but they tend to be sort of treated as, as marginal and unimportant. Uh, and so uh, that the, they were only worshiped in collective groups. Uh, and uh, in particular, that they were only, that rituals de delivered to the dead were only to keep them in their graves. Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say that uh, 
uh, that's, you know, that the purpose of rituals involving the manes was to keep the manes away from the living because uh, you didn't want to interact with them. Mm. Um, and I think uh, that this, is, as my book tries to argue at great length, um, uh, is, not, is not correct. Uh, and that uh, the, the whole idea uh, of deification and of interaction, human interaction with the dead uh, needs to be reconsidered. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what I've been, been trying to do. Mm. Yes, um, and, and in fact, my, my next question goes back to that. So, so we have the traditional model, and then, um, and that's also why I'm so happy to talk to you because you're one one of the people who are actually trying to question and convincingly trying to question uh, this an antique model. And like you said in your book, the ancient Roman afterlife, the Marnes belief, and the cult of the dead. I think this torpedoes quite a lot of the ancient uh, traditions. Can you maybe say something more specifically about the cult of the dead and uh, of, about the demoness? Because you say it's not just a negative thing as was generally understood. It's, it's mainly a very positive thing. Can you say something more about that? Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, so the Romans deified their dead. Uh, and they, so they'll be worshipped uh, as gods. Uh, and you can find this, in fact, on most any tombstone of, of the imperial era, uh, at least Latin tombstones, uh, where you'll say dis manibus, you know, uh, for, the, for the demones uh, at the top of the tombstone. Um, and this is so common that I think people have sort of trained themselves not to see it. Uh, and and uh, you'll find it uh, mysteriously translated in ways that eliminate the word D, you know, which is either, I mean, it's the contracted, it's the contracted plural of either Deus, divine, the adjective, or Deus, mm. uh, the, um, the noun God. So uh, the manes gods or the divine manes, whichever you prefer, uh, and it's not actually clear which it is. Uh, but clearly, there's a, a a use of deistic terminology there, mm. uh, which is very, very clear. Uh, and when you see it's translated simply as like spirits of the dead or something, that that, that kind of misses the point mm. uh, that they do worship the dead, and, and that the the Romans, you know, at a Roman funeral, uh, you know, one of the things that happens is that they, uh, uh, you know will consecrate the grave as a uh, ritual space for future uh, worship, and they'll give an uh, offering, uh, traditionally a sacrifice of an animal, uh, to uh, the dead person that's being uh, buried there uh, after being cremated in the early empire. Um, and then, the, you know, that there will be ongoing uh, worship uh, thereafter, that you have festivals, the Parentalia, nine days in February, uh, but there's other occasions you can simply take offerings to the grave. There are home shrines within the house, um, uh, which uh, you know, can in some cases be, be located in like Pompeii and you know, places where you have uh, good preservation of buildings. Um, and uh, so you're uh, you're directing these rites uh, to, to the dead. Uh, and Ovid says specifically when he's talking about the parentalia, you, know, you make an offering and then you add prayers, right? You're praying mm -hmm. to the dead. 
uh, for them to help you. Um, and uh, so, you know, you're not just trying to keep them away from you. If anything, you're trying to attract them. Mm. Uh, and there's a, a poem by uh, Statius where he's talking about a, a home shrine uh, uh, and a man is worshiping his dead father. And, you know, he says, you know, I'm, I'm summoning your manis uh, mm. to my house. Right. Mm. And he wants wants to interact with them. Um, and what are they uh, what are they praying for? Well, uh, so the, the manis have a handful of main powers uh that the they have the power of of life and death uh so you can uh ask them to extend life uh or to shorten it in other people uh and in you know the shorten it in other people there are for example military applications where there's a ritual when the romans are, are going to destroy a city and not just capture it uh where they basically uh, offer the the inhabitants of the city to the manes as a as a as an offering, um, a kind of sacrifice. Uh, but then you know the manes have to help the Romans win the battle, so the, the dead have to provide their own offering. In effect, mm. it's a very cleverly worded prayer. I always thought. Um, so you get things like that. But I think that for most Romans, the significance of the manes would be. Uh, to keep you alive, that, that is to say that they have the power to extend life beyond what's initially decreed by the fates. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that you would pray to them, uh, for them to keep you alive longer than you would otherwise live. Uh, and if you think about the implications of that, I mean, it's, you're thinking about a world in which, the, you know, people are walking through their lives uh surrounded by the dead you know mm -hmm. the, the, the dead are watching over them the the dead are are protecting them from this or that danger that could come up uh and and because that requires uh the dead uh, to be you know observing them uh there are also uh, things that you can uh call upon the dead to do that involve uh their uh them uh uh, watching you. Mm. Uh, and uh, so you can have, for example, uh, you can call them as a witness for an oath with the idea that they would enforce the oath if the person you know, swearing the oath breaks it. Um, and they're not the only God that you can call upon to do that. Uh, but I mean, if you're talking about a God that has the power of life and death, you know, that's you know, you don't want to piss them off. Um, so, uh, I mean, th th there is this, uh, this ability for them to do that. And there's also prayers um, in multiple places. Uh, Statius's Silva is a good place to find several examples where uh, their people are, are praying for interaction with the dead uh, in the form of messages and dreams. Um, and, you know, Psychologists, you know, study reactions to death, point out that people dreaming about dead relatives is very, very common. Uh, so the dream itself is, is, you know, sort of a human universal, but I mean, here it's being interpreted uh, in a particular cultural context in Rome, where this is a message from the manes, uh, and they, you know, whatever they do in their dream, you can then interpret as a message to you about something you should 
be doing in your life uh, with the implication that the manas can see not only your current life, but also your future and therefore can mm. advise you. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the, the, the dead can watch over you. Um, and the, the call of the manas can be combined with the idea of there being some sort of uh, underworld uh, in which some type of, of judgment and favorable or unfavorable placement can take place. Uh, and you will find that the manes uh, are, are invoked as having some control over that process. Mm. Uh, so you can have, uh, uh, you know, there's a passage in Suetonius where at the death of the emperor Tiberius, they call out to the manes to give him uh, no place in the underworld except among the impious, right? Suggest mm. there's a, a pious versus impious division. Uh, and that can be phrased in terms of, you know, Greek models of Tartarus and Elysium. So you can bring those in uh, and combine them. And you'll see that in like Virgil's Aeneid where uh, the hero Aeneas uh, worships his, his dead father as one of the manes in book five. And then he goes and visits him in Elysium in book six. Mm. Uh, and uh, so you, you can bring these models together but my uh, argument is that it is the manes that is the dominant tradition. Mm. Uh, that is that the, the the ritual religious ritual implications of you know what are you doing when people die? It's all about the manes. It's about mm. initiating ceremonies with the manes uh, and continuing those ceremonies later. And uh, even on the, the tombstones, you know, you don't have to put anything about the afterlife on a tombstone, mm. but they do, right? They put Dis Monibus at the top. Uh, they don't say, may you go to Elysium, which is actually mm. very, very rare to find on, on, on a tombstone. Uh, and so uh, the, you have the, the dead watching over you while you're alive, and they can, uh, if you choose to invoke this sort of idea of, of a of a segregated afterlife, uh, you can in invoke the, the manes to help you get the, the more favorable uh, placement in that scenario. Mm. Uh, and, and so the manes can work together with these other traditions. Uh, but what I think is a mistake is, is to focus on, on like Tartarus and Elysium to the exclusion of the manes. Mm. Uh, and in particular, scholars that have done that often say, well, they don't seem to be that committed to the idea of Tartarus and Elysium, so they must not have an afterlife at all. And you'll mm. find relatively recent books arguing that the Romans had a mostly secular view of death. And mm. uh, I just think that that's, that's you know, completely misleading. Uh, and uh, that, that uh, the death was very important to them, and mm. they thought the dead, the dead were with them. The dead mm. were watching over them, uh, and uh, so this is a—it's a model of the afterlife that not only is based on what the dead can do for you in the world of the living, rather than storing the dead somewhere, mm. but it's also a model in which the boundary line between human and God is porous. Mm. Uh, and you can cross that line at death uh, and you can become uh, one of the manes. Mm. Um, and in a very democratic way also, because you insisted before that, that it's not just for the emperors, it's, it's everybody who could. That's right. Uh, and if you look at the, uh, the criteria for, you know, essentially determining who worships whom, uh, it's based on 
uh, in part, it's based on inheritance. So if you inherit anything from anybody, uh, you can uh, end up being obligated to worship. It depends on your, there's like a formula from the, in the pontifical rules that has to do with the percentage of the estate that you, you end up getting, whether that obligates you. Um, uh, but so you can be obligated on the basis of inheritance, but you can also be obligated on the basis of, of family loyalty, uh, mm -hmm. broadly speaking, Pietas, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a term that uh, the Romans used to uh, talk about obligations in family, in government, but also obligations between humans and gods uh, as being uh, reciprocal. Uh, so mm -hmm. the, the myth to explain the idea of Pietas that the Romans tell is that once upon a time there was this woman uh, who was uh, sentenced to death by starvation, but she was allowed to have visitors and she didn't die. Uh, and eventually they realized that her daughter has been breastfeeding her uh, mm -hmm. just as the mother had once breastfed the, 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 the daughter. Mm -hmm. And this shows that the idea of Pietas, it's about uh, ongoing reciprocal obligations that everybody uh, you know, owes loyalty of, of certain kinds to every member of their family and it can be extended beyond the family to include friends and um, even like uh, political figures that you admire in certain cases uh, and that this can then be expressed by the the, the cult of the dead um, so that to, to, to die and not have worshipers would require you basically not just to not you know not leave any property and inheritance to somebody uh, but also to not have any close family relatives of any kind, uh, even if they're not linked by property. Uh, and, and so that it is a very democratic, a very inclusive uh, form of deification, that it really is everybody. Uh, I mean, you do have deified emperors, and they are a special category, and they get, uh, I mean, basically the difference is that a deified emperor gets Public, public worship by priests uh, as an individual, uh, whereas the manes, they get uh, worship as an individual by their surviving family members. Uh, but uh, when Roman priests worship manes, they worship them in groups, like the military mm -hmm. ritual that I talked about. Um, I, and, and so it's there's an implication that a deified emperor is somehow a, a slightly different and, and more important form of God than an ordinary one of the manes, uh, but it's not entirely a different idea. And I think that that uh, that the 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 way people have tried to limit deification to just emperors is, is you really have to disregard a, a, a substantial amount of evidence uh, to come to that conclusion. And I think it's, it, it's, it's not acceptable yeah. uh, as, as an argument. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, no. And I, 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 I think you make an excellent point there, but the manus is, well, not the manus, the, like you said, the, the, there was also this aspect of, of death that needed to be kept away not all that obviously and in fact in a previous date uh, on, on on the greek afterlife that i a previous date with death that i have with professor sarah isles johnson we spoke a bit about the greek restless dead and and it wouldn't be correct i think to not talk also about the roman similar restless dead 
In fact, all, because also for the Romans, like you already said, the border between life and death was, was extremely porous. And the Romans too believed in the possibility of these dangerous revenants, uh, be they returning ones or, or be they simply uh, brought along by incantations. And also for the Romans, it was insanity or madness, if not death itself, as the definite and the real threat of these dangerous ghosts. Um, death was and the dead were considered as unclean. And that's also why they were buried outside of, of the city. As long as it was outside, they were kept there and, and it was good. So can you say something about these more dangerous dead? Maybe also, if you think that something here ought to change in this understanding of ours as well. Well, I mean, I, I like Sarah Isles Johnston's work. Uh, and I like, uh, even though there's some substantial differences, I think, between like, uh, you know, the Greek call of the dead that she's looking at in the Romans. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I mean, I like her focus on interaction between the mm -hmm. living and the dead um, uh, in various various different sorts of uh, scenarios. And for her, too, it's not always negative. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and for the Romans, uh, there are different there are different categories of dead in effect uh, and different uh, types of interaction that you can have with them. Um, and I try, always try to emphasize that if you're talking about, uh, you know, the, the manes, the, the manes of the family and so forth, uh, while it's in theory, it's possible to anger them, you know, with neglect and, you know, have mm -hmm. them be, you know, be angry at you in the way that you could do with any other God. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that this is primarily, you know, dead that you're trying to evoke, uh, invoke that you're trying to, to, to uh, get their power to work for you. But then there's other situations in which the dead can be uh, directed uh, in a way that that could be, uh, you know, contrary to your interests uh, or even um, directed uh, as a weapon against you. Mm. And uh, the Romans uh, talk about, uh, you know, in addition to the manes, they have the larvae. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you know, what are larvae? Well, you know, if you, if you look at the different references to it, the larvae appear to be dead that have no, have no pre-existing ritual relationship with the particular humans that they're interacting with. Mm. Uh, um, and, and they are not recognizable. And, and uh, you know, uh, whereas you, you have a story in a Roman source, you know, where, you know, someone encounters one of the manes, you know, they always recognize it's their father from whatever. Uh, and in the stories about larvae, they're always unrecognizable. They have mm. uh, either a, a sort of uh, super white skeletal appearance, or sometimes they're described as being extremely dark uh, in color uh, in some way uh, that renders them uh, impossible to recognize uh, so that they're, they're dead that you wouldn't know. Uh, mm. And you wouldn't have, you know, you know, you know, be, you wouldn't be able to ward them off by having having this ongoing you know relationship of of worship you know inside your house or, or something with them uh, so that they could be threatening to you and the larvae I mean they show up in different contexts they're not necessarily evil uh, they're simply they can be directed 
to apply vengeance from different forces. And this can include the gods. Uh, so in scenarios where you do have like punishment after death, uh, you can have the, the larvae brought in to, to, to punish the death in the underworld, which might be a force of justice. And therefore, again, it doesn't show that larvae in, are intrinsically evil. Mm. Uh, but larvae also seem to be at times dead that are invoked by sorcerers uh, to attack people. Uh, and then that would be a particularly disturbing sort of uh, possibility in that you would be uh, threatened by the dead uh, who, you know, and you don't know which dead it is. You don't ha have any connection with that dead that would allow you uh, to ward it off or, or, you know, have a pre-existing favorable relationship with it. Uh, and, and so that could be very threatening. Uh, and one of the things that they can do, as you mentioned, is, is madness. You, you mm. could be larvatus is the word that shows up in, in Plautus's plays, uh, driven insane by the larvae. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, I mean, Plautus is second century BC, but you can find it in second century AD too in Apuleius's mm. uh, Metamorphosis. Uh, um, uh, so you have this idea of, of the dead that can bring, that can kill people, that can drive them insane, um, but they're doing it as, you know, in the, in the service of somebody else's desire for vengeance against you. Uh, so this would be a threat. Um, and uh, one of the things I point out in my book is that the traditions about the Lemuria, which is a, a festival for the dead in, in May, uh, you know, the, you'll get variations uh, in terms of how Romans refer to the dead uh, of, uh, that show up, because uh, it's a ritual where the dead come to your house and you, you give them an offering of beans. Um, and the, uh, some uh, authors, uh, notably Ovid, uh, will... Uh, you know, present them as being sort of an extension of, of, of the, the manes and the, 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 the cult of the dead, you know, that's also practiced the parentalia. And, mm. But you'll also get other sources that suggest uh, that, uh, the, that the, the Lemuria is the dead of the Lemuria um, are, are more hostile. And in some cases, they specifically use the term larvae, uh, which suggests that some, some Romans viewed it as a, as a, a ceremony, in effect, to, to attract potentially hostile uh, dead as some kind of preemptive action, uh, yeah. where you'd give them an offering, and then you could then establish uh, contact uh, with dead that, that you wouldn't ordinarily do so. Um, uh, so, you can kind of see this uh, this tradition of larvae as being sort of at the margins of, of, of the larger tradition about mm. uh, the manes uh, as a variant, uh, but I mean it's one that that seems uh, you know to be recognized as a threat con connected to the broader threat of, of of sorcery in general, which the mm. Romans largely defined as the invocation of powers to harm somebody else, right? Mm. Uh, so the magic, magic in general isn't illegal, but using magic to harm people is. Mm. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the larvae, uh, the, their, their powers can then be invoked for exactly that kind mm. of purpose. Okay, thank you. Now, 
Almost 40 years ago, Paul Venn wrote one of his classical books on whether the Greeks really believe their myths. Not only is that question still valid for the Greeks, it is probably even more important when talking about Roman religion and Roman beliefs. Did they actually believe in everything that in, in the Elysian field or in the Demanus? Did they truly believe in the dangerous reverence? Did they truly think that their dead lived on as gods, as the? And if I may immediately add a different take on this question too, can one maybe say that this question is even more important, not because of the beliefs of the Greeks and the Romans, but because of our incapacity to look at the past without our modern Christian beliefs? Well, uh, uh, well, yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, the, so I, I, I like that you, you brought up Paul Venn. Um, the because you know Venn has this very sophisticated book about do the Greeks believe in, uh, yeah. in their myths? Uh, and then when he turns to the Romans, he says these, these enormously broad, condescending things. So I, yeah. I quote a passage in my book where he, he says uh, the, the Romans believe nothing yeah. about the afterlife. <laughs> uh, and uh, and it seemed to me that that was. Well, again, it has to do with uh, the, the way certain scholars prefer everything Greek to everything Roman. Um, but the but there's a broader issue, which is that uh, there's been a tendency in recent work uh, on religious thought uh, within you know the sphere of Roman studies about the Roman specifically, but also in anthropology, uh, you know, having to do with people scattered over a wide area, China, Madagascar, and other places, uh, to deny that the concept of belief uh, is applicable to any non-Christian culture, uh, and mm -hmm. to insist that belief is, is intrinsically Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and this, uh, I think, uh, is, uh, is not a, an acceptable uh, formulation. Because if you look at how the argument is constructed, it normally defines belief in a, in a very narrow Christianized way uh, that has to do with Christian creedal formulas. Uh, that is to say, uh, you know, sets of mandatory beliefs to define group identity. Mm -hmm. I believe, you know, mm -hmm. Jesus is Lord, therefore I am a Christian that kind of thing where you have some sort of enforce, some sort of mechanism to enforce the correctness of beliefs. Uh, and, uh, and therefore that there would be only one set of uh, uh, correct beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so people, uh, they say, well, you know, you see all this diversity in the Romans in some of these other societies mentioned by the, uh, the anthropologists. So that can't be belief that has to be something else. Uh, and then, uh, to my mind, they, they struggle to find uh, a good explanation of what it is then. <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, in the first place, that if you simply look the word belief up uh, in a dictionary in English, but I think this is also true of other, you know, modern uh, European languages, uh, equivalent terminology, that belief is just not that narrow. Uh, that uh, you know, the dictionary would say that belief is to have confidence in the truth of an assertion mm. uh, uh, and to say that only you know Christians could do that uh, just seems very strange uh, <laughs> and, and so when you have the, these these broad definitions of, of 
of belief. Uh, I don't think that you can say that this could be restricted to, to Christianity or to, to any really, or to any particular time period or, or anything like that, that it just doesn't work. But having said that, I, I think that there are differences in the way beliefs can be applied. Uh, and that to say that, uh, you know, that the problem with the, the arguments against belief are, are there the way they, they equate belief in general with a sp particular sort of creedal, creedal formulation of belief within Christianity. Mm. Uh, and if you look at what the Romans are doing, the, the Romans, uh, they have uh, no mechanism that it, that enforces correctness of beliefs mm. uh you know that the priests uh, the, you know uh, they they're concerned with ritual and things like that but but i mean they're not telling you what to believe beyond the very general points like the, the you know the gods exist and, um and uh so you have a situation in which beliefs can just coexist Mm. Um, I, and I became kind of interested in this, uh, so I'll tell you the story, this, I became interested in this issue, you know, when I was working on my dissertation, I was, I was trying to deal with the problems of how, of how to talk about a situation in which you have no definition of correct beliefs, uh, so you have various beliefs distributed through a community, but that through community interaction, some of these beliefs would be more common than others. Mm. Uh, and I was trying to, to get a, figure out how to talk about that. Uh, and I was using the word, uh, you know, the English word consensus uh, to mean that. And, and um, Ian Morris, who studies ancient, uh, uh, well, he studies, studies death in relation mostly to, to early Greek archeology. span mm. uh, he uh, he was a member of my dissertation committee at one time, uh, and uh, so I got into an argument about it. And he insisted the consensus meant that everybody uh, everybody endorsed a particular position, uh, and that therefore had to be you know a, a, an assertion of correct beliefs. And I was saying, well, no, that's not what I mean. Uh, and so we got into an argument about it, and and I so I told him that I. I thought talking to him was like talking to a wall because he wasn't listening to anything that I was saying. So he got angry and resigned from my, my <laughs> dissertation committee. Uh, so if there are graduate students listening to this, let me just say that you probably shouldn't say something like that to one of your professors, even <laughs> if it's true, which it was. Um, but uh, so anyway, so I had to re reform my, my committee uh, a little bit after that. Um, but but having raised this issue, you know, that I then had to find a solution to it. Um, and what I ended up doing was looking at, at uh, uh, set theory uh, uh, of, of how to define categories by means of sort of overlapping uh, variables. Uh, so in biology, I have what's called a, a polythetic set. Uh, and it's a set made up of the overlap of categories. Uh, so you'll have a, a number of examples in your set that don't all have the same features, uh, but there's a degree of overlap which would allow you to define a category by that overlap. Mm -hmm. uh, and a good example would be like a bird, right? An eagle and a penguin are both birds, but they don't look the same, right? Mm -hmm. They have all these different features, but 
you know, if you sort of break it down the way biologists do, they would say there's there's enough overlap there that you could include them uh, in the same category as, you know, parrots uh, or some other type of word. Uh, so I was looking at these kinds of overlaps of sets, and in particular, a model uh, of, of the fuzzy set, um, uh, which comes from um, psychology, uh, people like Eleanor Roche uh, talking about the, you know, the, the percentage of people that might uh, have a particular idea. Uh, and so a fuzzy set would be one, it would be a polythetic set is as made up of the overlap uh, uh, of other sets, but just, but it wouldn't be that every, every possible variable was equally weighted, that some of them uh, would be uh, more common than others. Um, and it seemed to me that that fit uh, what I was talking about very well, which, which was uh, the idea that you have a society in which they're not asserting sets of correct beliefs that you have to endorse, but there are these beliefs in the community and through community interaction uh, and uh, the fact that some of them are reinforced by rituals and some of them might not be and, and so forth, uh, that you're going to get some of them as being more common than others. So you can mm -hmm. talk about degrees of, of endorsement of, of particular beliefs without defining some beliefs as correct and some mm. as incorrect. Mm. Uh, and so what I was arguing in my book to, to do is that you'd be looking at something like, uh, I, I use the term belief clusters, where you would have, you know, some beliefs depend on an endorsement of some underlying belief. So you get variations that all depend on, uh, on agreement on some other point. So that other point has to be more common and you can kind of set up a hierarchy of of the occurrence of beliefs. Uh, and uh, so something like um, uh, the idea uh, that, uh, uh, for example, the, the dead of, of the Lemuria, the, the, uh, some, people, some people see them as, uh, uh, you know, as, as manes, some people see them as larvae. So those mm. are variations, but they're all dependent on the idea uh, that uh, the dead uh, exist as, as this, this force uh, that's mobile and can come to your house and you can interact with them there. Uh, so there are the, the, these points they agree on and then there are the variations that are built upon that, those points. Mm. Uh, and so that's what I mean by a belief cluster that, that you, can, you can find uh, ideas often grouped around like some, some uh, central point, uh, either a very general belief, you know, God X exists, uh, or some like ritual action or something that reinforces a particular uh, in detail about that God. Uh, but then you can have from that common ground other, other uh, variations that might be individually less common. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, that this maybe is a better way of looking at it than, than trying to define, you know, the Romans believe X, X, mm. Y, and Z, and then saying, you know, that this is like set in stone or something that, that you always have to say that, well, mm. uh, they believe X, uh, but X maybe has these different sub-beliefs that are different from each other and uh, that you have a group of beliefs uh, that are related uh, rather than, you know, defining doctrine and again, mm. in the Christian creedal sense. Yeah. And, 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 the, 
an uh, orthodoxy. The orthodoxy, yes. Yeah, uh, and I think this this also takes me really close to to my next and, and, and unfortunately last question is that you you stress in your work and a very important aspect that I and and that's what you call the orthopraxis. That's an idea that should be studied a lot more, and maybe even especially in our contemporary Western societies where orthodoxies and inquisition seems to be seem to be again on the rise. Anyway, I, I too was taught a long time ago that the Roman religion was all about do ut des, about a strictly functional gift so you can be given back. But your insistence on this idea of orthopraxis and not on the orthodoxes uh, sets the practices of Roman belief in a completely different light and also their beliefs sets it in a completely different light that takes it far beyond the mere gift and be given back. Can you say something more about this in conclusion, please? Uh, yes, uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, so again, I, I was looking at, uh, you know, different models from you know the study of other cultures that, that might help me in 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 looking at what the Romans are doing, and I became very interested in a, in a model of orthopraxy that was put forth uh, by James Watson and um, Evelyn Roski in separate articles, but they're in the same like anthology, uh, and the they're looking at orthopraxy in China. Uh, and they're arguing that uh, that instead of doing what, say, Christianity does, which is to uh, uh, to define group group activity uh, by uh, define group activity uh, by correctness of belief. So you know, you believe X, Y, and Z, and therefore you're a Christian in good standing. Uh, that the, that the Romans are defining group identity by the, the correct performance of rituals. Mm. Uh, and so the Roman priests, you know, they, they, they are experts on ritual procedure, uh, but they don't really like get into disagreements about the nature of deities, uh, mm. that they, they get into disagreements about how to worship them and you know what the correct ceremony is and uh, jurisdictional issues of which priest has jurisdiction over that ceremony. And, and so that's the kind of thing Romans argue about in religion. Um, but they don't really, uh, oh, they don't really argue uh, about, uh, you know, beliefs of how to define the gods. Um, and, and so uh, what, uh, what, uh, Roski in particular is saying is that uh, that this means that doesn't remove the issue of belief from what the the Rome what the Chinese she was talking about but as I'm applying it to the Romans uh, are, are doing uh, what it does is it limits uh, the number of of beliefs uh, that are being officially endorsed uh, to uh, to a minimum. Uh, that is to say, if you're saying that the gods want such and such a ceremony to be performed in such and such a way, uh, well, I mean, you're endorsing the idea that the gods exist, that they can respond to prayers, uh, and that they want this and that ceremony. But anything else that, uh, you know, you, you want to believe about them, um, 
is up to you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, so it's not that beliefs aren't important to individual participants, uh, but that uh, they're not being officially asserted uh, as a way of defining uh, the religious identity of the group. Uh, and you really have a, only sort of very general beliefs that are built into the performance of ceremonies. Um, and, uh, and if you look at it that way, and, and then you can see how a very broad range of, of variation can uh, coexist. Uh, and uh, they, they can perform uh, the same ceremonies. So, you know, mm -hmm. the people that thought the Lemuria was about the Manes, the people that thought the Lemuria was about the larvae, they can both perform the Lemuria ceremony, mm -hmm. right? The dead come to your house and you offer the beans. Um, uh, and, and so that the, the ceremony can become sort of the focal point at the center of a cluster of variations in belief. And it's not that the beliefs aren't important, uh, but that they're not being officially asserted by the priests. Uh, the, so it's up to the individual believers and variations can simply coexist. Mm. Uh, and I mean, it, so, I mean, the, the idea, the specific example you, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the I give and uh, so that you may give, I mean, that belief, you know, it could be built in to the performance of a ceremony, right? I mean, you're, you're performing the ceremony to honor the God with the hope that God will help you. But it's not that, that, that it couldn't be part of that. Uh, it's just that uh, that the, the definition of, of, of the group religiously is not about belief in any particular point, right? It, it's, it's, about, uh, it's about the collective performance of ceremonies, uh, you know, within a, within a range of uh, procedures that are being defined by Rome's mm. religious officials. Uh, and even private ceremonies like the Curentalia for the dead, where, you know, individual people are, are, you know, going out to do this for their own relatives. I mean, there are still official procedures for, for how to perform the ceremony. Uh, and you assume that there's probably a lot of variation that we don't hear about in, in practice. But I mean, you know, in question, there is at least an official procedure but what you want to believe about the manes other than they exist and that they can answer prayers it's up to you thank you so much for this charles uh, thanks for this extremely illuminating talk i would have loved to continue talking to you especially about your idea that the afterlife was not a major factor in conversion to christianity i think that seems extremely provocating as well but maybe we will be able to do that another time so anyway thanks a lot for this lovely talk. All right. Well, thank you for having me here. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks also to our listeners for having joined us in this episode of Dates with Death. And dear listeners, if you like our volunteer work at PICT, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information about how to join PICT, please visit our website. My name is Christophe van Houten. Thank you and 